do a little bit this morning and ask the sound people to turn me down if I do um, have an incident. Um, this morning we are looking at Revelations chapter 14. So we're reading from verses 1 to 5 and we'll come to that in a, in a moment. Now most of you have probably seen a movie by the name of The Bucket List and since this movie's come out it's been quite fashionable to have a bucket list or you hear about people's bucket lists. Now if you don't know what a bucket list is, if you're not familiar with it, what it is is it's a list of things that you want to do or things that you want to experience or achieve during your lifetime. Um, You want to do these things before you kick the bucket. Hence why it's called a bucket list. Now I, I don't have a bucket list, but if I did, one of the things that I would love to do is to watch the All Blacks in one of the great stadiums around the world. And if I had my choice of stadiums, it would be Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. And the reason why I would choose the Millennium Stadium is not because of the local tropical climate. I'm sure it's actually really quite nice there. But it's because of the atmosphere that would be there within that stadium at such a big match. As most of you probably know, the Welsh are very famous for their singing and their rugby fans in particular love to sing at these big fixtures. We've got a video um, which we're going to play which just gives us a little taste of what that is like. So that just gives you a little taste of what it's like. It's not the same as being there and I believe that was a clip from about 2013. They were about to play the French and I understand the Welsh went on to beat the French in that game. Um, So what are these guys singing here in this video? It's actually a hymn that they are singing. And it's a hymn by the name Bread of Heaven. And it was actually originally written in Welsh. They sing it in English but it was originally written in Welsh by a Methodist preacher and his name was, of all things, William Williams. So old Billy Williams wrote this. And this is back in the 1700s. And this hymn has been adopted by the Welsh rugby fans and it's a popular thing for them to sing in these stadiums at these big fixtures. And if we just look briefly at some of the words that they have there. So the first verse is, Guide me, O thou great Redeemer, Pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. And as you can see in some of those other verses. So here we have 70,000 Welsh people singing this great hymn 
in the stadium. And it's just hard to comprehend. Now, I know we've had quite a flurry of uh, international visitors here recently, so do we have anyone from Wales here this morning? No Welshman? Half Welsh, Brenda. <laughs> Apparently the top half. <laughs> uh, you can sing in Welsh. Well, Brenda, we've got another song coming up later in the service. We'll be all watching and listening. In today's reading, we encounter a vision of John. And in this vision, he witnesses the redeemed people of God. And they are all gathered together in God's presence. And they are singing a new song. And this new song is a song of victory. Now if you, like me, find it hard to comprehend what it would be like there in Millennium Stadium, listening to all these people singing, um, how much more is it hard to comprehend what it will be like in this vision that John shares with us of a great multitude of believers singing a song of victory before their Lord. So let's come to Revelation. Before we, we read, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I just pray um, that your spirit is here amongst us. Lord, guide me as I speak. This morning may I speak clearly and, and um, Lord, concisely. And Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit has the power to just speak individual things to us through the word and just to prompt us in different areas of our lives and things um, that we need to consider, Lord. Lord, I pray overall that this message is a message of encouragement to us this morning. We've just prayed before about our international situation and how things can be so uncertain around us. Uh, whether it's on an international basis or even in our own personal lives. But Lord, we have the certainty and the surety of our salvation. And Lord, we have the certainty of our destiny as well, Lord. So Lord, we just pray that you encourage us this morning through your word. Amen. Okay, Revelations chapter 14 and we're reading verses 1 to 5. Then I looked... And there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with them a hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, when we first started out studying the book of Revelation, 
One of the things that we discovered was that it is actually a book of great encouragement to believers. The original audience, that's the church that is scattered throughout Asia Minor, viewed it in such light and were greatly encouraged by these visions from John. They were facing great persecution and external pressures to compromise their faith. But these visions by God, given to John, brought them great hope. What Revelation tells us is that God is great and mighty. He is victorious and he will be ultimately victorious over evil. And that will be forever. And what's more, as Christians, you belong to him and he will save you and protect you. Revelation is a word of encouragement to the first century believers and it is also a word of encouragement to all believers since John sent this message out. Now this particular passage that we're looking at today is a great encouragement to us. In this vision, John looks forward to the ultimate dwelling of God and all of his people. It is a vision of their eternal destination or their eternal destiny. It doesn't matter what we face, we are saved. We are sealed by Christ, we are rescued from the tribulation and our destiny is an eternal destiny that we cannot properly comprehend. Now the funny thing about today's reading is that it falls amongst a portion of Revelation which is known as God's judgment upon a sinful earth. So if we, this is a section on the book of Revelation from chapters 6 through to 16. So these judgments are being poured out during this tribulation period and as mentioned previously, they will intensify as we get closer to the Lord's return. So for example, last week we looked at the beast of the sea or the false prophet. We spoke about the number of the beast and prior to that we read about the seals of judgment and the trumpets of judgment and later on in coming weeks we will look at what is known as the bold judgments. So these are all judgments that God brings upon the earth because of its sin. But here in chapter 14, in the middle of all these visions of judgment, we have this vision which focuses on the people of God being gathered in his presence and they are singing a song of victory. Now as we move through today's reading, I will point out a number of contrasts between what we have read recently and what we have looked at recently and particularly in chapters 12 and 13, and what we're looking at today. And also as we explore this passage, I'll be jumping backwards and forwards a little bit between the verses. So normally we go verse 1, verse 2, but this morning we'll just be going backwards and forwards a little bit. And in the way that we'll look at it this morning, we'll look at three different aspects of this vision. So we'll look at the where, so we'll look at where this is taking place, we'll look at who, and we'll look at the what. So the where is taking place in Mount Zion or in God's eternal city. Then we'll look at who is there and it speaks about God, the Lamb and also the 144,000. And then we'll take a look at what is happening here. So we see that this 140,000 are mightily singing a new song before the Lord. They are singing a song of victory. So let's start out with the where. Where 
does this take place? Then I looked and before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now as we know, a lot of what we read in Revelation is figurative or symbolic as opposed to literal. And it's the same with this reference to Mount Zion. It's not talking about an earthly location that we might know about. So this is not talking about Mount Zion and Jerusalem, though Mount Zion and Jerusalem is probably a foreshadow of what we're looking at today. But rather it is talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal dwelling place of God and his people. Now if we're to look back in the Old Testament, we will find that there are a number of references to Zion and Mount Zion. And in some of these cases, in some of these references, they are a reference to the true eternal city of God. And also, along with that, there is an allusion to it being a place where the remnant of his people are saved. So if we look to look at Zion, Zion in itself is mentioned 155 times in the Old Testament and it can refer to God's dwelling in the temple or it can be a symbol of his people or for his people. But ultimately it refers to the eternal city in which God will rule over at the end of history. Uh, one example of this is Psalm chapter 2. So if we look at Psalm chapter 2 verses 6 to 7. Yet I have set my king, and this is talking about Jesus, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now the term Mount Zion is mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament. And nine of these allude to the remnant being saved and they are saved in connection with God's name and with his sovereign rule. And an example of this is Joel chapter 2. Um, Joel chapter 2 verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. And the Lord is said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. And that is what we find here in Revelation. Mount Zion is a reference or it's a symbol of the end time eternal city where God dwells. And in this vision he dwells there with his people and he provides security to the remnant who have been brought out of the earth. That is God's people. And as Christians we should be looking towards dwelling here. Uh, if we'd like to turn to Hebrews, I think we're going to have it up on the, on the big screen there as well. Hebrews chapter 12. And what we find here is a passage that really embodies that Mount Zion is referring to in Revelation. So it really embodies what Mount Zion is referring to in Revelation. So Hebrews chapter 12 verses 22 to 23. But you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So what we read there in Hebrews chapter 12 really embodies what, where this place is, what's going on there, who's there. So that's the where, that's Mount Zion. So who do we see here? So it mentions, and what we're going to focus on this morning is the Lamb and the 144,000, but there is also a mention of the heavenly hosts, the elders and the living creatures. So let's look at the Lamb. Then I look and behold a Lamb. So the first thing that John sees is the true Lamb of God. That is Christ who is standing on Mount Zion. And we see here a bit of a contrast. We see a contrast here between the lamb versus the beasts of chapter 13. Jesus is the true lamb. And this is in comparison to the false lamb of the second beast that we uh, looked at last week. Uh, Revelation chapter 13 verse 11 says this, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. So he looked like a lamb and he was trying to look like a lamb. But then he spoke and his true nature came through. And he spoke like a dragon. Jesus is the true lamb. And so we see that Jesus is standing on Mount Zion. And who is with him? It says there, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand. So who are these 140,000? Who are they? Well, Calpain preached on the 144,000 late last year when he covered chapter 7. So we've already taken a bit of a look at who these people are. This, if you remember, this is where the four angels at the four corners of the earth were about to release four winds of judgement when suddenly from the east another angel appeared and that had the authority of God. And he says, wait, do not release the winds until we have sealed the servants of our God on the forehead. And the number was spoken of 144,000. Now this number, 144,000, is not a literal number. It is representative of the entire community of God. That is, all of God's people throughout the entirety of history. So why does it give us this number? Why does it give us this number of 144,000? Well what 144,000 represents, it represents the 12 tribes of Israel who are God's people under the Old Covenant which is multiplied by the 12 apostles who represent the church or God's people under the New Covenant. So when you multiply those together we get 144,000. And then this number is then multiplied by a thousand. And in biblical terms, a thousand is the symbolic of a great multitude. 
a great number that cannot be counted. So all of this gives us 144,000 or a representation of all of God's people. Now if you also recall in Revelation 7, John first heard the number 144,000 and then he turned and he saw a great multitude that could not be counted. Now if you want more information on why 144,000 is a representative figure and not a literal figure, please refer to WEBC Sermon Podcast titled Sealed by God, presented by someone called Kalfein Yonker and it's dated November the 5th. So it was Guy Fawkes Day, if you want to remember. <laughs> Probably explains why that sermon was quite a cracker. <laughs> and judging by the um, collective groan there, why that joke was quite a fizzer. <laughs> okay, that's enough dad jokes for one day. Okay, so we have this 144,000 which is representative of all of God's people. So in this scripture it highlights some of the characteristics of God's people. So first of all we see that they are sealed with the name of the Father and of the Son. So they had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So again we see another contrast here. God has placed his seal or his name upon the foreheads of his people. Last week we saw how the false prophet who was copying God placed the mark of the beast upon those who belong to Satan. So we see that God's people are sealed with his name and belong to heaven. The unbelievers are sealed with the name or the number of the beast and belong to the earth. And Calphane mentioned um, spoke about these numbers. So there was first of all the number 777 and this represents perfection which is only attained by God's grace but it is the number of God. And then he spoke about the number 666. So this represents falling short. It falls short of that number 777 or it falls short of perfection and this is the number of man. So as in Revelation 7 and here in Revelation chapter 14 verse 1 we see that God's people are sealed on the forehead with the name of Christ and the name of God. Now this seal speaks to us of a couple of things. Firstly, we belong to God. Christ paid the price so that we could be saved, so that we could be rescued. We read in verse 4, how the 144,000 is comprised of those purchased from mankind. So we are purchased by the work of the cross or if we want to put it into Christian type language, we have been redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So we now belong to God. We're saved and we become part of this great multitude that cannot be counted. We become children of God. Now, this is just a little bit of a side, but, you know, quite often as Christians, we can feel like we're in a minority. Popular Western culture today tries to tell us that as society is evolving, 
Christians are a dying breed who follow an outdated, out-of-touch philosophy. But what we see in this vision here is that God encourages us with the fact that we are actually part of a huge community of believers. We cannot even fathom how, how large it is. And it's not just 144,000. God's people are a vast multitude that cannot be counted. And it's not just the chosen few. It's not just some great evangelists and a few little old ladies. Those people will be there for sure. Maybe even little old ladies who are great evangelists. But it's not just the chosen few. You only need to look at the growing number of Christians in places like China. And what about Waka? We recently had John and Calfane report back on the believers there. And there's a great community of believers there who are associated with that church. And I can't remember the number. I seem to think 1,500. But was that 1,500 churches or 1,500 believers? Churches. So there you go. So... And then of course there is all of God's people from all of history added into that mix as well. Now alongside this privilege of belonging to God, to being one of God's people, we also have some responsibility. Because Christ paid that great price, we are no longer our own. We belong to God. So the question is, is are we living lives that reflect this fact? Do we live like we belong to God? Do we look like God's people? Or do we live out our journey through life in rebellion to him? If we do, it will show. So what does it, who does it look like we belong to? Does it look like we belong to Christ? So the first part of being sealed to God tells us that we belong to God. The second part about being sealed by God is that we are under God's protection. We are God's people and as such nothing can change that. So we can have security in our salvation and that's part of the encouragement of Revelation. You belong to God and you are under his wing. That was the encouragement to the first century Christians and they were facing persecution, even to the possibility of death. And it is our encouragement when we are facing our own trials and tribulations. And even as we prayed this morning, as we look around the world and see great uncertainty, it gives us that security. We belong to God. Nothing can separate us from his love. Our destiny is assured and we have his protection. So how do we become sealed by God? How does this come about? How do we become saved? In Ephesians 1, Paul writes to Christians in Ephesus and he assures them of their salvation. Now if you don't identify yourself as a believer this morning, I would ask you to consider this reading. This is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were seated with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now we spoke earlier about either belonging to God as a believer or belonging to Satan as an unbeliever. The seal of God versus the mark of the beast. Now if you don't identify yourself as belonging to Christ today, now that is not a status that is set in concrete. What we read in the Bible is the word of truth. It is the gospel or the good news. Those who trust and believe are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we see that the the people of God, they are sealed by Christ and sealed with the name of Jesus. We also see an, another characteristic here, that the characteristic of purity. And we read about that in verses 4 and 5. So verse 4 says this, These are those who did not defile themselves with women. They, for they remained virgins. And then later on in verse 5, No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So God's people are pure before him, or more accurately have been made pure. And what we see here is a symbolic description of believers as they stand before God in heaven. Now, I know what you could say. You could say, well, this obviously doesn't apply to me. I have been married for what seems like an eternity and I've got kids for miles. Now, if that's your view of marriage, we might come and have a chat to you anyway and give your wife a medal or something. (laughs) But anyway, this is not a literal requirement. It is the description of God's completed, purifying work in his people. It's like we will be restored to what should have been our default setting. There is no sin in heaven and God's people will be made holy before him. Now if you want to get into the Christian jargon, this is the process of sanctification. And what we are reading about here is the process of sanctification being completed. And of course, as we know, that doesn't happen on this side of eternity. As we look around, um, we don't see any perfect people here. God's people are made pure. And of course, this is not of their own merit. Let's look at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which have been done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And how did he do this? He did it through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So it's all about the completion of that washing of regeneration and that renewing within our lives. We will stand holy and pure before God 
because of Jesus. So following on on this theme of being holy before God, we have this reference to being offered as first fruits. And we are offered as first fruits to God. And this speaks to us about being holy, but it also speaks to us about being set apart. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. And once again, we go back to the Old Testament to understand what this is all about. In the Old Testament during the time of harvest, the first fruits were offered to God. Now these first fruits were the first fruits of the ground or of their harvest, um, and they were offered unto God. But it was also the firstborn child was offered unto God in a sense. And also the firstborn of animals or livestock. So we have this principle of first fruits being offered unto God. So there is a couple of attributes about first fruits that we should consider in relation to God's people. First of all, they were acknowledgement that when we think of the first fruits, they were an acknowledgement that the first the fruits of the harvest, that is the whole harvest, was from the Lord. So the first fruits were an acknowledgement that God provided the harvest. We often refer to our our offerings as first fruits, um, that it is the acknowledgement that everything that we have comes from God. And it's the same with God's people. They are pictured as first fruits because their salvation belongs to God. Their salvation is only through God. So the first fruits were acknowledgement of God's provision, but the first fruits were also to be consecrated to the Lord. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 23 to 25. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you are to consider it forbidden. It must not be eaten. In the fourth year all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat its fruit. In this way your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. So the first fruits were set aside and they were regarded as holy to God. Jeremiah um, carries this theme on and he refers it to Israel. This is from Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 3. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of of his harvest. So we see here in Jeremiah that Israel was set apart from the unbelieving nations around them. And here in Revelation we see that principle applied to all of God's people who have been set apart from the rest of humanity. Also, the, another aspect that we need to consider with the first fruits, that the first fruits belong to God. They are God's. And that's the same with God's people. They belong to God. Now the last characteristic we see of God's people highlighted here in Revelation 14 is that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now this is an important attribute of a believer and it's a pretty straightforward concept so I won't spend much time on it this morning. But as believers we follow Christ. We follow his voice in the sense that he calls us to him 
and we follow his voice in a lifestyle of obedience to Christ. And we follow his example also. So we take on his attributes and his characteristics. We see Jesus as being a great example for us to follow. So now we come to the what. What is happening here in this vision of John? So we see that the 144,000 are singing a new song. And there's a couple of aspects that we're going to look at this morning about that. First of all, it was a great sound. So at the beginning of this morning's message, I impressed upon you the atmosphere and the sheer volume of 70,000 Welshmen passionately singing in that rugby stadium in Cardiff. And we caught just but a glimpse of it on the video clip. And of course, the clip doesn't do justice to actually being there and actually experiencing what it would be like. But here's the kicker. That ain't nothing compared to what John saw in his vision. It doesn't compare to what we've read about here in this morning in Revelation. And again, we can only read John's description. So John tries to put into words what he saw, what he heard and what he experienced. This sound of singing was like the roar of rushing waters. It was like a loud peal of thunder. And he goes on to say, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. So don't worry about compiling your bucket list. It's your after the bucket has been kicked list that more than makes up for this. In fact, we cannot possibly comprehend just how awesome it will be. So there was this great sound of singing and what were the people there singing? They were singing a new song. So I doubt that this new song is going to be the bread of heaven. This is a new song and we read there that only the 144,000 could learn the song. So only the people of God would be partaking in this event. So it's not going to be like karaoke night where anyone can rock up be handed a mic and the words are rolled out before them and they bring you their best rendition of Michael Jackson. It's not going to be like that. But what does this description of being a new song tells us? Well, once again we turn to the Old Testament and we pick up on the theme of singing new songs and the theme that we have is when the people of Israel sung a new song they were actually celebrating God's victory. And we see this particularly in the Psalms. So this new song is a song of victory. It is a song that is sung by those who have overcome. In chapters 12 and 13 we encounter the persecution and the suffering of the church at the hands of Satan and his cohorts. But here in Revelation 14 we are given this picture of heaven this picture of God and his people. It is the picture of salvation from what we are experiencing in this world. While we face trials, we face hardships, we deal with pain, persecution and suffering, ultimately and victoriously we are sealed by God 
as his people. We are made holy, right. We are made whole and complete because of what Christ has done on the cross. And of course we've often spoken about how in heaven there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more fear. And not only that, we have this great unfathomable eternal inheritance that we can look forward to. That is the encouragement that we can take from this vision. Now in closing this morning, normally we close uh, with a prayer, but this morning I would like us to stand and recite one of these psalms of victory, one of these psalms which speaks, is singing a new song, and that's Psalm 98. So we've got the words up there, I think. So let's all stand and let's together recite Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. If you'd like to remain standing, we will sing our last song.